Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Morning Report podcast, uh, division of the Neurology Exam Review podcast from the Yale School of Medicine. I'm Dr. Jeff Dewey. I'm an assistant professor of neurology with a specialty in neuromuscular medicine and also uh, the associate program director. And I'm also the guest faculty today, which means I'm going to have to share a fun fact about myself. So one of the virtues of living in Connecticut is we can enjoy uh, some land around us. And my wife and I are amateur uh, chicken farmers and beekeepers. So I'll let our guest uh, residents, I guess they're not our guest residents, they're really the core of the program, but I'll let our residents introduce themselves. Hey everyone, um, I'm Chris. Uh, I've been here before, so you probably recognize me. Uh, one of the PGY4s, I'll be an epilepsy fellow at Yale next year. And I shared one fun fact about Connecticut wineries yesterday, but Connecticut also interestingly has a just as vibrant uh, craft brewery scene as well. Have not been to all the craft breweries unlike the wineries, but there's a lot of great um, places. So come visit Connecticut. Don't even get me started. We might have to do a separate podcast just on the Connecticut craft brew. And, and you, you know, I don't have anything to say about the wine, uh, but I'll leave that to you. Yeah. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Rahua. This is my first time doing this podcast. Um, I'm a current PGY3 in the neurology program. And as far as a fact, is it a fact about uh, Connecticut or me? Or really. We just happen to love living in Connecticut, but yeah. you can tell okay. us a fun fact about yourself. Hmm. When I was a teenager, I entered the pageant for the Tournament of Roses, and I got into the semifinals. <laughs> nice. That's a weird <laughs> random no, fact. No, that's awesome. <laughs> Hopefully that counts. <laughs> Absolutely. Now we feel like we know you better. All right. So, uh, Rahu, you're going to present the case to us today, uh, and I'll, I'll sort of be the attending and moderator, and I'll try and throw you know some, some hard questions to Chris and see if we can stump him. So, take okay. All right. So the, I won't say the consult question itself because that'll give, a, give it away, but this patient presented to the ED with um, distorted visual fields and concern for diplopia or double vision. All right, you can give me sort of a summarized version, but maybe a little bit of the history of President Ellis. Okay, so for the past few weeks before she came to the ED, she noted that her Again, her visual fields were distorted, and she got diplopia when she looked to the, to the left. Looking straight ahead, she didn't have any diplopia, but it was, again, more so, more so towards uh, the left where she had this diplopia as well as distorted visual fields. She, from what I wrote here, it's not clear if the, I, I, believe when I spoke to her, the images were next to each other, but I didn't, I apologize, I didn't write that part down. Then the night before she came seeking medical attention, her friend told her that her left pupil was larger than her right pupil. Uh, she subsequently saw her ophthalmologist uh, the following day, and the ophthalmologist also noted ptosis of the left eyelid. And with that concern, she came into the ED, and that's how I got involved in her case. And uh, just quickly, how old is she? Oh, I apologize. She's a 55-year-old woman, no medical history. Okay. So this is a good opportunity to think about the approach to uh, diplopia and, and maybe visual uh, field complaints. Can you just clarify a little more, uh, or maybe we don't know, but 
what when she said distorted visual fields what did that mean it, i i'm not really sure which which she meant beyond that i apologize i didn't uh, write that down when i initially saw her um, at baseline she just she wears reading glasses otherwise she doesn't have a visual aid were these uh, blind spots or loss of visual field at all no it wasn't loss of visual field from what i remember her visual field i believe it was more blurry but it wasn't there was no area of vision that was gone maybe one other thing is what, what was the onset of this sudden gradual it's it was gradual okay so we have somebody who's middle-aged we don't know anything about their medical history yet and that's okay but they uh, have sort of a gradual uh, and would you say it was days weeks so gradual onset of definite uh, diplopia, probably horizontal diplopia that's worse looking to the left, and then possibly some other ill-defined distortion of the visual fields, but not clearly any negative visual symptoms. Mm -hmm. uh, Chris, when you hear this sort of story, what are you thinking about? So, I mean, just the double vision and the distorted fields, immediately I was starting to think about high pressure issues, although it sounds, you know, like this potentially could be a cranial nerve 6 palsy, so you, there's a lot of wide differentials for that. Um, but then Rahua added in the pupillary changes and the ptosis, which I think brings up the possibility of a Horner syndrome as well. So although initially I was thinking mostly cranial nerve 6, now there seems to be obviously some involvement of cranial nerve 3, and maybe it's all oculomotor as well. But all of these have a pretty wide differential ranging from things that can be kind of benign to things that are more scary. Um, things like aneurysmal compression or high pressure, you know, again, could be hydrocephalus or a mass occupying lesion to something, you know, benign, like more benign, like mycenae gravis or thyroid eye disease, or even just uh, microvascular complications of a cranial nerve itself. So this, uh, with the story, I think it's a little difficult to know right now, but I think we have to keep our minds open given the things she's complaining about. And in terms of the characteristics of the diplopia, does that help you with some early localization? Assuming we're going to do an exam, of course. Yeah, so I think, like you said, the important questions for diplopia is, one, is it monoocular or binocular, which just sounds clearly binocular, but um, usually you ask the patient to cover each eye to make sure that the double vision goes away because monoocular diplopia is more of an eye problem, whereas binocular is more of an eye movement problem. And then the images being uh, side by side or, or on top of one another, a diagonal can help you kind of figure out whether it's more horizontal or vertical diplopia. Um, and then you typically also would ask, is it worse looking to the left or looking to the right, which can help either localize to an eye or a particular eye movement. So it typically helps, particularly with cranial nerve six palsies. And then the final question is usually, is it better with near vision or far vision, um, which tells you something about accommodation, which would point more to a cranial nerve three problem. Since, you know, in the typical way I ask that is like, you know, people nowadays obviously have their cell phones. So it's like when you're texting or looking at your cell phone, is it better than when you're looking far away at the TV or, you know, trying to drive or something like that? Yeah, so I agree with you. Horizontal, uh, if it's clearly horizontal, and we have to recognize that these are all subjective reports. So it's, it's tough to uh, say 100%, although patients are usually pretty good, uh, especially if there's someone who thought to cover one eye and the other. I think that's, that's uh, you know, clearly someone who's uh, thinking closely about their symptoms. But uh, someone with horizontal diplopia, you really have to implicate either the medial or the lateral rectus. 
uh, lateral being cranial nerve six innervated, the medial being part of cranial nerve three, although usually you see a different subjective diplopia with the cranial nerve three palsy. And then as you said, if it's worse looking far away, that's someone who's having trouble uh, sort of abducting their eyes. And if it's worse closer, that's have someone who's having trouble adducting the affected eye. And that can help you a little bit with which nerves or muscles are involved. Remembering that not all diplopia is a cranial neuropathy. We can see diplopia with orbital myositis, with myasthenia gravis, that really is related to just a single muscle being involved and not a whole cranial nerve territory. So we have still a pretty wide differential. And I agree with the both worrisome and maybe less worrisome things that you're thinking about right now. So Rahwa, anything else we should know from the HPI medical history, uh, you know, family history that can contribute before we get to the exam? No, the only other thing from the HPI is that it didn't really, she told me it didn't make a difference with near versus far vision. More looking to the left, she had this distorted visual field. Again, she was healthy, no past medical history. I didn't ask her about family history. She wasn't taking any medications. And nothing else on neurologic review systems or medical review systems? No. Been... All right, okay. so why don't you tell us about the pertinent positives and negatives of this patient's exam? Okay, so pertinent positives. She did have anisocoria on her exam. Left pupil was about six millimeters and her right pupil was about four millimeters. However, both pupils reacted equally um, to light. When on fundoscopic exam, I thought her left, the left, pup, uh, the left optic disc appeared slightly blurred, but with the caveat that this was the beginning of my PGY2 year, so <laughs> I don't know how great my, <laughs> my um, fundoscopic exam was at that time, but so take that with a grain of salt. Otherwise, her visual fields were completely intact. Um, when I first saw her, I thought her extraocular movements actually were completely intact. When my attending saw her afterwards, he, uh, he thought that there was some right um, hypertropia on upward, uh, upward gaze on the left eye. Otherwise, she did, the last pertinent positive is that she did have ptosis on the left eye, on the left side. Did we do an ice pack test? I did not do an ice pack test. Just because uh, just it was relatively isolated. So it sounds like then nothing else on her neurologic exam was abnormal, including other cranial nerves. Mm -mm. Okay. Mm -mm. Uh, visual acuity, was that test? I did not test visual acuity. Okay. Uh, so Dr. Trainer, what are you thinking when you hear that exam? Yeah, so um, again, like I said, initially I was thinking about cranial nerve six, but here we don't really have that. Um, seems like the only ophthalmoplegia type finding we have is some hypertropia or increased or upgaze um, of the left eye, which, you know, if it's in all directions of gaze would be probably why she's experiencing so much double vision. And then she has a pupil involved since her, she has anisocoria that's more than physiologic, which would be just half a millimeter and possibly some left uh, optic disc blurring um, with intact uh, visual field. So it sounds like a partial cranial nerve three palsy of which there are, you know, again, a, a large number of causes. And again, things that are less concerning like microvascular disease, but then also things that are more concerning things like aneurysmal compression of cranial nerve three. Um, so certainly I think 
you know, in terms of her workup, um, she would certainly need both head imaging, including vascular imaging, to rule out any of those um, kind of vascular complications. Yeah, I really want to clarify this hypertropia. So were her eyes conjugate with neutral gaze? Could you see anything or was it only with up gaze that you pulled out this? I, yeah, I wish I could see her now, <laughs> just with the experience I had. I felt that her gaze was conjugate when I first saw her. And but when your attending saw her, was, they felt that it was conjugate, disconjugate only with looking upward or at all, at all directions? It seemed like with um, with upward with upward gaze, it was more conjugate. But and which eye was higher? Uh, the left eye. Okay. The left so eye. the classic the la the classic cranial nerve three palsy is is what? A classic cranial nerve three three palsy would be the eye is down and out because you only have the intact superior oblique and the lateral rectus. So superior oblique uh, down deviating and torsion, uh, having torsion of the eye and then the lateral rectus pulling it out. Yeah, so the two, the two muscles that move the eye upward are the superior rectus and the inferior oblique when the eye is at a certain uh, angle sort of uh, parallel to the axis of that muscle. So it's tough to explain a cranial nerve three palsy that makes somebody uh, have a hypertropic eye in any direction of gaze. Um, but we're keeping in mind, like, like Dr. Gebra said, this was a couple years ago and uh, you perhaps don't feel like you were as confident in, uh, in your examination at that time, which is totally reasonable. I think, yeah. that, I think the eye exam is something that scares all uh, neurologists in training. So we'll, we'll take that with a grain of salt, but I agree that the, the some sort of ocular motor problem with a pupillary issue the number one thing you want to rule out is aneurysmal compression uh, of cranial nerve three uh, or something uh, causing increased intracranial pressure and a false localizing sign. So mm -hmm. I agree that imaging is the next step. Is that what was done? Yeah. yeah. So she had um, a, CT, a CTA done for that reason to rule, as you said, to rule out um, possible aneurysm compressing cranial nerve three. And what was notable is she had a homogeneously enhancing mass in the left cavernous sinus. Mm. That was the main thing. Otherwise, there was no signs of increased intracranial hydrocephalus or int intracranial pressure, no hydrocephalus found on imaging. It was mainly this mass, this homogeneous mass, appearing mass in the CPA. So the, so the cavernous sinus is sort of the great ocular imitator. Uh, mm -hmm. Does anyone want to try and take a crack at what structures run through the cavernous sinus that make it so? Oh yeah. So in the cavernous sinus you have vascular wise the internal carotid artery running through there and then in terms of cranial nerves you have cranial nerve three, four, uh, six and then V1 and the first and second divisions are V1 and V2 of the trigeminal nerve. V3 is the only one that doesn't run through the cavernous sinus in terms of the first uh, cranial nerves. Yeah, that sounds good. So, it, you know, the reason I, I think of it as the great imitator is not all of those have to be affected at the same time. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, especially with masses that grow slowly, you can pick off even one of those contents uh, and it can localize to many different places along the axis of that cranial nerve. So sort of the acute version of a cavernous sinus pathology being a clot, which may be a little less selective over what things are affected, but maybe not. But it's always something to keep on the, the uh, zebra differential. Uh, I, I don't know if it's a horse or a zebra or maybe a show pony or something in between, but uh, things that, that could sneak past you if you weren't uh, considering them.
So what, uh, what do you do in this case? You have an enhancing mass uh, in the cavernous sinus uh, that sounds like it satisfactorily explains the symptoms and, and is good enough to say why not everything in the cavernous sinus is affected. You know, other like masses in this area um, can also have a wide differential. The homogenous enhancing nature of it immediately makes me think of meningioma, but certainly head and neck cancers can be in this area as well. So homogeneously enhancing things like squamous cell carcinomas, craniopharyngiomas, not in this lady because she's older and that would typically be a more a younger person presenting with that. But, you know, any of the head and neck cancers can really cause this as well. So it seems like the next step would, you know, I, I don't know that an MRI imaging would necessarily elucidate any further, you know, as far as the differential. So I could see where people would do it. And I don't think that that's necessarily wrong, but I don't know that it's going to help figure out exactly what this is. So I would assume that the next step would probably be a consultation with the neurosurgeon for consideration for possible um, resection, which obviously would give us the answer pathologically as to what this is. Yeah, it's definitely uh, becoming a multi-specialty case. So what was done next? Yeah, so she had, she, she did have an MRI, which the findings were consistent with a meningioma. Neurosurgery was also, they were also consulted at the same time we were. And just as far as wrapping up the case, there was, they, they said, I think based on, I'm not actually sure why, but the main um, treatment option going forward was radiation oncology. So she's being followed by radon. I don't know what happened afterwards, like her, whether that resolved. We don't have, fortunately, have follow-up beyond that. Yeah, I can imagine, again, not being a neurosurgeon, but resection in this area in terms of getting a full clean resection of a tumor would be very difficult because it's really a venous right. space that you're resecting from, right? Um, yeah. So I can see why radiation makes would would make sense. Now yeah. I don't know anything about the treatment protocols for different you know types of these cancers, but uh, yeah, yeah, clearly clearly not something that I as a neuromuscular neurologist am going to make the decision on. Great. So what an interesting case and what an interesting turn of events. You know, I th I think that's probably one of the less common reasons we see cranial nerve three palsies. Yeah, worth keeping in the differential. Uh, let me turn it to each of you. Can you tell us one or two things that you sort of learn from this case and that you're going to keep in mind going forward? So for me, I think I always go back to how much the history can help with double vision. So just remembering those four questions that we started with, which is when you're assessing a patient with double vision, first asking if it's monoocular or binocular, because that knows whether you need to keep doing the consult or call your friends who are ophthalmologists. And then asking those other three questions to help you kind of figure out which nerve, even before you ask them to start moving, which is what are the images side by side, diagonal or on top of each other? Is it worse with looking to one direction, left, right, up or down? And then is it worse with near or far vision? So again, keeping in mind that you can practically ask that question by, you know, asking people things that they do in their daily lives, like looking at their cell phones or watching TV or something like that. And I would add on to that uh... Just observationally, does the patient have a head tilt? That's one of mm -hmm. the big giveaways for a diagonal diplopia that can help right. narrow your differential a little bit. Dr. Gebra, what about you? Yeah, I think, I, as I've alluded to before, this was the first week when I did the ED rotation as a PGY2. So um, it really shows how important it is, really honing in on the the ophthalmic exam, It's which, uh, which when you're starting out as a neural resident can be really can be at times challenging, but you really have to focus 
narrowing on the way that the eyes are moving, even just at rest as well, assessing for possible uh, congenite versus discontinuate gaze. The ice pack test was also a good thought. I was a little biased because I had seen the imaging beforehand, but that would be also something important to think about. So just really honing in on the different aspects of the uh, ophthalmic exam, the uh, extraocular movements, also the, pu uh, the pupillary movements and the fundoscopic exam, all super important and take time to develop. Yeah, I've, I've come to the conclusion that neuro-ophthalmologists as a group are just smarter than me. Uh, and I, I, always have, uh, I always have a little trepidation with ocular complaints, but I think you both make really good points. You have a list of questions that you ask and know why you're asking them. And I think, uh, Chris, you listed a lot of the important questions and, and probably all the ones that I usually ask. And then as, as you said, Rawit, know what exam maneuvers are really going to help you and don't shy away from the things that you really should do in a lot of people. And this came up in a previous morning report. The fundoscopic exam is a crucial component of the neurologic exam and should be done in everyone, but particularly these patients. Uh, and then all of the other tests, like you said, of eye movement, of uh, you know, pupillary responses, make sure you dim the room to really get a good look at the pupils. This is where you sort of want to be the detective with the microscope, or sorry, with the magnifying glass that's really hovering over all of the fine details of the case. Uh, and then I, I agree with both of your pearls. And then for me, I I had a great cavernous sinus learning case when I was a sub-eye that's always stuck with me, but important to remember what the contents of the cavernous sinus are. So uh, you, you said them all correctly. It's the internal carotid artery, the oculomotor nerve, the trochlear nerve, abducens nerve, and that's actually the one that runs in the middle, cranial nerve huh. six, uh, and then branches V1 and V2 of the trigeminal nerve, uh, all of which can be affected either in isolation or together, depending on the pathology that's in the cavernous sinus. And we talked about one today, which is masses, but also thrombi, uh, inflammation, uh, you know, a number of things can sort of hide there. Uh, and so it's important to maintain a wide differential when you're thinking of that as localization and imaging really is key here. Uh, we actually recently had a case of an abscess in the cavernous sinus uh, that kind of snuck in as somebody with some ill-defined diplopia and a, a very, very subtle disconjugate gaze on exam. So they can be very sneaky. Well, thank you. Great case, great learning for everyone. Uh, and let's do it again soon.